The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled, Can You Avoid Iatrogenic Harm? Understanding and Identifying Fibrodysplasia Ossificans Progressiva. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash NYY860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Thank you for joining us. In this presentation today, we're going to talk about the prevalence and disease burden related to FOP. I'm Professor Professor Richard Keane. I'm a consultant in metabolic bone disease working in London, uh, the UK. So in the presentation, we're going to cover the prevalence of the disease, and then we're going to look at the main symptoms and the impact these have on individuals uh, living with the condition. So firstly, what is FOP? Well, FOP is an ultra-rare uh, disease. It's characterized by malformed uh, big toes, which are present at birth, and then individuals suffer with progressive heterotopic ossification that occurs in the muscles, tendons, ligaments, and it's often associated with painful uh, flare-ups of, of these swellings. The condition, as I said, is ultra-rare. Um, there have been different studies looking at how common it is across the world, one way that's been looked at is by looking at some of the patient support groups across the world and looking at the number of individuals that are registered with them that these, these support charities know. And you can see here in the two tables, the, uh, both in the regions of the world, uh, the sort of the estimated prevalence of the disease being sort of just under sort of one in a million. And then again, in some of the specific countries where we've got a bit more uh, detail, you can again see that the, the, there's a slight variability in the prevalence of the condition. And this may be due to differences in the healthcare systems that are employed and how sort of easy it is for um, people with a rare disease to access both the medical care system to actually get a diagnosis, but also then how much awareness they have about the support charities um, that, um, that are available in those specific countries. And there have been two other um, more scientific uh, research programs to try and, again, capture the, the relative prevalence of, of the uh, condition. One was looking in the US, where, again, they used access to the patient um, support groups, but also looked at sort of centres that were known to be expert centres looking after the condition. And, again, by sort of going through uh, records, uh, of removing duplicate cases, they came up with a prevalence of just under uh, one in a million. And on the right, we have, again, data from France, where, again, they used different sort of ways of looking at the, um, the, the number of patients that had a suspected diagnosis of FOP. And again, they came up with a prevalence of just over one in a million, so 1.36 per million. So again, across the, um, the, these various countries, we, we know the condition is ultra-rare, uh, and there, there again, there is no sort of ge geographical or racial bias uh, related to this condition. So I mentioned at the beginning the characteristic of the condition are these malformed uh, big toes. And you can see on the picture on the left, the toes are shorter. And again, it's slightly uh, diverted in shape. And again, in many uh, young babies that are born with this condition, this can sometimes be misdiagnosed as a sort of hallux valgus. Now, there are other quite rare genetic disorders that can um, give rise to a similar appearance. Again, we've just listed some of those on the right. But again, this uh, uh, an abnormality such as this should raise suspicion about a patient uh, having FOP. As 
as we discussed at the beginning, the condition is, is genetic, but there are other radiological features which sometimes may give a clue of the condition um, and again, could also be used as, as a sort of follow-on uh, after you've discovered or identified patients having uh, an abnormality in the great big toe. Um, on the left, we have sort of some some X-ray pictures of the knee, and we can see some of the extra bone formed around the uh, around the proximal tibia. They sometimes have heterotopic ossification in the spine, causing restriction in neck movements. Abnormalities can also be seen in the in the hands, as shown in the hand radiograph. And again, on the right, we have the abnormality in the in the right great in the, in the greater toe. So again, sometimes radiological findings can act as an as an added a guide to to help with the uh, diagnosis of the condition. So the condition is is genetic. It, there are the abnormalities the, the abnormalities are seen in the great big toe. Um, but then the next part of the condition relates to the uh, the onset of these. Um, heterotopic um, swellings and, and these these flare-ups and again a natural history study of, of the condition performed in a number of patients worldwide was able to collect information regarding the age at their first uh, disease flare-up and you can see that the average age is around the age of sort of three to four years of age when patients actually start experiencing these episodes of swelling uh, that are characteristically associated with the condition. In some individuals, we the question is, what is a flare-up? And, and again, most patients report sort of a combination of symptoms associated with either swelling, pain, uh, decreased movement at a particular joint, warmth or swelling. And again, this is data that's been captured from sort of a natural history um, study. And again, you can see sort of the how things um, sort of ha- the, the symptoms the patients uh, report. And again, they obviously patients can report several of those symptoms but all of any of these could be suggestive that a patient is actually um, having a flare. And again, what you can see is, is that the majority of patients will start to sort of realise that they're having a flare-up within a couple of days. And again, I think the longer that patients have the condition, the more aware they are that perhaps when they do start experiencing pain and swelling, it probably is a disease flare-up. Uh, and again, but in some individuals, some and some flare-ups can be more difficult to recognise, and so sometimes the, the diagnosis um, can be delayed. So again, we we talked about the um, the age of onset, and the average age is around the age of sort of four to five. And again, the disease has a characteristic pattern in sort of how it spreads. It seems often to spread from sort of the central part of the body spreading out. Uh, and also sort of um, from sort of the head um, going down. And this um, I, in this diagram, we've sort of plotted the, the median age of joint involvement um, in, in the individuals um, taken from the natural history study. So again, you can see that initially the, the sort of the median age of involvement in sort of around the shoulder um, and the, the hips is, is lower. And then obviously as, as we progress more distally to the elbows, to the wrists, to the knees and to the ankles, the age increases. So there is this characteristic pattern of how the disease starts at commonly starting around the neck and the shoulder area uh, and then progressing outwards and downwards. This is seen in, in almost all of the individuals um, that, 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 are with, uh, that, that have FOP. 
and the natural progression of the disease um, with sort of these progressive um, flare-ups that then you have forming of, of bone within the soft tissues, uh, which is then irreversible. And again, this um, chart sort of highlights the progressive, relentless nature of the condition. So again, in the first decade of life, there are these um, soft tissue swellings, and they gradually lead to the development of bone in abnormal tissues. As patients move into their second decade, many of these joints then become fixed and fused, causing restriction in their movement. And obviously then as they get that little bit older, there's more restriction in mobility, often the, the need of uh, wheelchairs and, and other sorts of assistance. And unfortunately, because of involvement in the, in the, in the chest, in the, in, the, in the chest wall, um, many individuals can, can sort of suffer with respiratory compromise and, 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 and premature um, death. And these radiographs are not from the same individual, but taken sort of as a sample. So th these are whole body CT scans that were taken again as part of a research study. But what they illustrate is, is the again the progressive, um, relentless sort of deformity associated with the condition, and also the amount of bone. So on the far left, we have basically an individual uh, in. in a young individual um, with FOP, but really no evidence of any heterotopic bone. In the middle, we have a teenage individual um, who has, you can see, sort of starting to get some some fixation of some of the joints, particularly in the upper limb. Uh, and again, evidence of heterotopic bone uh, is present. And again, on the far right, you've got an individual with a much more severe disease uh, with scoliosis, a lot of heterotopic bone in various um, body parts and obviously a lot of joint contractures. And again, I think this picture, pictorial image, really illustrates the sort of devastating progressive nature of the, of the condition. We've been able to show that the amount of bone, as illustrated on those radiographs, um, correlates uh, very well with the, um, with the sort of clinical severity of the score. So we're able to assess clinically the, the amount of joint involvement using a, a, a sort of a, a grading system for each joint as to whether it moves normally or whether it um, is fixed completely or partially fixed. And there's a scoring system for sort of 15 both joints and body parts, which means you get a score between zero and 30. So on these graphs on the on the vertical axis, we've got the sort of like an assessment of disease severity. So we can again see that so uh, an individual with, with very no disease evidence of atrocious Goshen would have scores of around zero. And obviously, when you get to 30, you're essentially your, your body is almost completely fixed. And what we can see from these graphs is that the as individuals' disease severity increases, um, the amount of um, bone sort of assessed on the left with whole body CT um, is increasing. And again, we can see that obviously the, on the um, on the right hand graph that the amount of bone in the the number of body regions that might be affected again correlates very well with then the clinical um, observed restriction in function and mobility. So a lot of the data that I've talked about, so we talked about so far, has been sort of cross-sectional survey data and assessing individuals. Um, we, I'm down just going to share a couple, as a couple of slides that have been performed, looking at longitudinal assessment of uh, individuals with FOP. Um, this was a study of 114 uh, individuals with FOP. It was um, at a number of centres um, throughout the world, as highlighted in the in, in the sort of the map, and. The individuals were studied over a three-year time period. And what we can see in the top sort of um, diagram is the fact that 
over that time, over sort of seventy percent of the individuals experienced uh, more than one flare uh, of the disease. And again, because of the nature of the condition, and you can see that actually that was much higher in the younger age group um, than in the older group. So again, the disease is much more active and um, progressive in the in, in in the younger age group. And then in the bottom right, we've almost got like a heat map showing where the uh, where the bone was being formed and deposited. And again, what we can see is that the, the heat map is much stronger around sort of the, the shoulder area, the hip area, and again the distal body sites. So the the the, the proximal, the, the the distal forearms, the distal legs are much sort of cooler. So there's much less new bone being formed there. So this again was the first sort of longitudinal assessment using using whole body CT, showing the progressive nature of the condition. The question then is, well. How does the, the disease um, impact on individuals' quality of life? As we say, we, we, we've demonstrated obviously that there's um, that there's obviously um, a lot of bone being formed in abnormal body sites, uh, and obviously this is then causing restriction in movement. And again, this was a study looking um, at an online questionnaires that individuals completed. It was conducted over fifteen uh, countries, and in interest in this study included both patients but also family members who were looking after the uh, individuals and living at home. So again, in in the graph on the right, what you have here is is again sort of the the the, the population of patients is divided into sort of different ages, um, sort of uh, sort of as a young age, sort of teenagers, late teens, early twenties, and then older group. And what we each of the sort of columns represents sort of diff, four different degrees of severity. So the the, the left hand um, column in each in each sort of age group would be patients with with very minimal disease, and then on the far right you've got patients essentially with with much more restrictive disease. So what we can see again in in the graph is again the, the progression of the disease over over time with age. So again in the younger group, basically more of them are, are not so severely affected. Whereas obviously in the in the older group, the sort of the late twenties, uh, you can see there that there's a much higher preponderance of individuals who are who are in the sort of the the, the column that would illustrate the, the patients with much more severe disease restriction. So shows again highlighting in this cross-sectional survey the progressive um, nature of the condition uh, and the impact it would have on the body parts. But I think again what's what was interesting from this study was is it was really trying to look down at the quality of life for these individuals. So again, on the left, we can see that their physical function assessed through sort of questionnaires was was reduced. So again, the the higher the, the bar graph um, on the left, the the sort of worse the, the the physical function. So again, we can see that the individuals who had the more severe disease as, as assessed by the restriction in their joint movement had worse physical function. And then in the graphs on the on the left, um, again you can see both in the in the first sort of group of four um, bars we have the um, patients the patient population. This is looking at their quality of life, so showing the disease has a significant impact on reducing the quality of life in those patients who are severely affected. But also again, there was also an impact on the quality of life for the other family members living with the individuals and also to their to their primary um, caregivers. So again, I think showing that you know, the, the disease has wide-ranging impact both for the patients but also for their other family members. And the other thing that we that the studies has demonstrated, all these studies demonstrate, is that in addition to just the quality of life, there is an impact on 
the, with the progressive nature of the condition with basically the associated healthcare needs. So again, on the left, we have the data from the quality of life survey, the, the computer survey. And again, just showing again that across the board with the more severe disease um, affected individuals, there's more need for them to require more sort of um, assistive techn- assistive aids. They need more um, assistance with regards to um, things um, helping with, with their activities. Um, and again, there's <clears throat> there's more need for them to have perhaps more medical therapies. And again, on the right-hand side, we've got again data from that longitudinal study showing that again, during that three-year time period, you know, a large number of individuals and needed different um, devices. The younger age group needed perhaps more devices to help them in the home environment um, with regards to perhaps using, you know, within bedrooms, with bathrooms, et cetera. And unfortunately for the older population who are obviously much more severely affected, there's much more a need for them to have assistance with, you know, actually needing more direct care um, because obviously they wouldn't have their parents to assist them. So again, showing very much the impact of the disease on healthcare utilisation. So, in summary, I think that I hope that this module has demonstrated that FOP is an ultra rare genetic disorder. It's characterised by abnormalities in the great big toes, and then these episodic, uh, painful, acute swellings. The heterotopic ossification that's formed in the soft tissue accumulates over time. It restricts movement and is ultimately uh, disabling uh, for individuals. And also the condition has a significant impact on the quality of life for both the individuals who has FOP, but also for their other family members. Thank you for joining us. I am Edna Mancilla from the Division of Endocrinology at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Today, I would like to review some aspects of the pathophysiology of fibrodysplasia ossificans progressiva, or FOP. FOP is an ultra-rare and severely disabling disorder of extraskeletal bone formation. The extraskeletal bone formation occurs insidiously and episodically in flares. Previous studies have shown that there's a dysregulation of BMP signaling in FOP. And the genetic cause was discovered in 2006 by genome-wide linkage analysis in five families. The genetic cause was found to be an ACVR variant, which is a type 1 BMP receptor, also known as ALT2. Surprisingly, the same mutation was found in all studied cases of sporadic and familial classic FOP. This mutation was located at codon 206 and was an arginine to histidine substitution in the glycine serine or GS domain of the receptor. This is a tyrosine kinase receptor. Classic FOP is characterized by malformation of the great toes and, and episodic tissue swellings with ectopic ossification. Patients with non-classic FOP have variant classic features or additional clinical features. Different ACVR variants were found in patients with non-classic FOP. These variants affected the GS domain of the receptor or the protein kinase receptor domain. Similarly to the classic R206H mutation, these pathogenic variants increase BMP signaling. Autosomal dominant transmission was suspected in 1993, as you can see on the pedigree of the family in, on the right. 
However, there are few families reported to date due to low reproductive fitness. Most cases are there for the noble. Several sets of monozygotic twins have been described. Genetic testing is indicated in patients with clinical suspicion who have the malformation of the great toes plus minus soft tissue swellings. Now I'd like to give you a vivid look at the processes in play in the, with the pathophysiology of FOP through this video. Activating mutations of the activin A receptor type 1 gene, or ACVR1, which encodes for a bone morphogenic protein type 1 receptor, or ALK2, have been shown to cause FOP. The R206H mutation has been found in 97% of patients with FOP. ALK2 receptors play a role in skeletal development, chondrogenesis, and osteogenesis. However, the mutations lead to a dysregulated increase in ligand-dependent and ligand-independent BMP signaling. In the presence of R206H and other activating mutations, the receptor is sensitized to activin A, which normally acts as an antagonist to the receptor. Normally, in the presence of ligands, the inhibitory protein FKBP12 turns off the signaling, preventing inappropriate or leaky activation. The R206H mutation leads to a conformational change, interfering with the binding of FKBP12. Without the antagonist action of FKBP12, SMAD158 signaling continues, and the BMP pathway remains activated, resulting in spontaneous ossification and overgrowth of bone. Normally, during tissue injury, there is an immune response. In FOP, that response is exaggerated and prolonged with an elevated cytokine response. The fibroproliferative stage is followed by the recruitment of chondroprogenitor and osteoprogenitor cells, leading to cartilage and bone formation. Through endochondral ossification, the cartilaginous tissue becomes bone. This bone, formed in the wrong places and at the wrong time, is called heterotopic ossification. Heterotopic ossification generally begins centrally, on the back of the head, neck, or shoulders, extending caudally and peripherally, resulting in reduced motion and mobility, altered growth, and pain. Note that heterotopic ossification can occur in the absence of an obvious flare-up. That was a brief review of the aberrant FOP signaling pathway. In summary, ALK2 receptors pathway normally involves phosphorylation of SMAD proteins, non-SMAD pathways, and they're normally blocked by a protein called FKBP12 to avoid leaky activation. The pathogenic variants in ALK2 lead to constitutive activation of the receptor. This is in part due to reduction in the FKBP12-dependent suppression. They also lead to hyperactivation in response to boromorphogenetic proteins, and they lead to sensitization to act A, which is normally a receptor antagonist. The dysregulated BMP signaling leads to alterations in chondrogenesis. Developmentally or prenatally, this dysregulated BMP signaling causes abnormal joint specification, growth plate dysplasia, and osteochondromas. Examples are the malformations of the great toes, the thumbs, and the cervical spine. Postnatally, the patients develop heterotopic ossification, which occurs through the process of endochondral ossification. Twin studies have shown that uh, twins have similar congenital malformations, but the progression of the disease is different depending on life events. 
This uh, leads to questioning the role of injury and inflammation in FOP. The contribution of the immune system in, has been studied in the FOP mouse model. Here see, you see slides from muscle sections from control mice and FOP mice after cardiotoxin injury. On the left column in each panel, you see the sections of the control mice, while on the right, you see the sections of the FOP mice. Initially, histology shows muscle degradation and increase in immune cells in both control and FOP mice. However, by day three, you can see that in FOP mice, there's an increase in immune cells, including macrophages, lymphocytes, neutrophils, and mast cells. There's also an increase in cytokines such as interleukin-6, interleukin-1b, and TNF-alpha. Injury then progresses to a fibroproliferative stage and muscle regeneration in the control mice, while in FOP mice you see endochondrogenesis depicted by the blue staining of glycosaminoglycans. This then develops into bone through endochondral ossification, as you see with the red staining, while the controlled mice show muscle regeneration. Studies in mice and in human stem cells from exfoliated teeth from FOP patients have shown that tissue injury in FOP leads to hypoxia, which leads to amplified BMP signaling and heterotopic ossification. This occurs through an increase in hypoxia-inducible factor 1-alpha, which inhibits rabaptin-5, a protein involved in endosomal trafficking. This causes prolonged endosomal retention of the mutated receptor and increased BMP signaling. Previous lab and human studies have shown that toll-like receptors in FOP are activated by inflammatory stimuli. The activation of toll-like receptor 4 leads to amplified BMP signaling. A recent study looking at plasma biomarkers in FOP patients suggests that, that there's a background inflammatory state with superimposed acute inflammation during flare-ups. The researchers looked at the plasma from 40 FOP patients and 40 controls. Patient flare-up status was noted as active or inactive. Inactive status were those with remote flare-ups or quiescent FOP. The researchers looked at 113 different biomarkers. Of these biomarkers, adiponectin and tenescent C levels highly correlated with the FOP genotype. These factors were increased in FOP, while calicrine 7 highly correlated with acute flare-up status this was decreased during the C's activity. Adiponectin is an adipocyte-specific factor, which is involved in BMP signaling and osteogenesis. Tenacin C is an immune factor which stimulates toll-like receptor 4. You can see on the left the hypothesis from the researchers where tenacin C and adiponectin are basically increased in FOP leading to stimulation of toll-like receptor 4, which amplifies BMP signaling, leading to ossification. Calicrine 7 is decreased during flare-ups, decreasing the inhibition on tenacin C. In summary, FOP is caused by heterozygous activating variants in ALK2. 
BMP signaling is dysregulated with increased activity of ALK2 and hyperresponsiveness to ligands. This BMP dysregulation leads to altered skeletal development and heterotopic ossification, which occurs through ectopic endochondral ossification. Tissue injury in FOP leads to inflammation and hypoxia, causing increased BMP signaling and heterotopic ossification. The immune system plays an important role in flare-ups and a basal pro-inflammatory state. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for joining us. In this module, we're going to talk about how you can avoid the common pitfalls in making a misdiagnosis in someone who uh, has FOP. I'm Professor Richard Keane. I'm a consultant in metabolic bone disease working in London uh, in the UK. So FOP is an ultra-rare um, genetic disorder. It's characterized clinically at birth by the abnormality, these ma malformation of the uh, great uh, toe. And this, as we, as we will discuss a little bit later, is the clinical hallmark of the disease which should give suspicion that an individual does have FOP. The condition can then progress and present with classic flare-ups, which are so acute soft tissue swellings that um, appear, gradually resolve, and often then leave um, abnormal bone, heterotopic bone, in soft tissues that will lead to restriction in movement and loss of function. And so in this patient journey, you can see that there are several sort of clues that might arise clinically that would suggest someone could have FOP. But the definitive um, diagnosis, as you can see on the end, would be made by with genetic confirmation. And that, again, would be the ultimate sort of thing to make the diagnosis. Because many, um, in many cases, the abnormality of the big toe may could be due to something else. The challenge, I think, for an ultra-rare disease is that many uh, doctors, healthcare professionals will not have come across um, the condition during their training. And with the sort of the nature of the condition and how the, with the sort of various sort of um, disease presentations, um, individuals with the condition will come into contact with a wide range of of doctors and other healthcare professionals. And this was just a survey that was done, again, with individuals um, who contributed to a patient, an online patient registry. And they were basically asked you know, which doctor had provided the correct diagnosis um, for their condition. And you can see, again, there's a number of individuals who've, who've been involved in their care who made that diagnosis. But I think that what we find is that, you know, Patients will often end up seeing a lot of individuals. Um, I personally have seen patients who, again, because of the abnormality in the big toe, were seen initially by an orthopedic surgeon, may then have also been seen by a paediatrician. And then somewhere along the line, someone has thought, could this individual um, have FOP? And then they sent them along to, to someone who, who understands the condition, has actually uh, has, has awareness and understanding. But again, you can see that actually there was a really low sort of rate of, of diagnostic yield um, in particularly, say, in paediatricians, but also we know this is across the board with lots of other um, individuals. And again, 
there's a wide spectrum of healthcare professionals involved in these in these patients' journeys. So again, as we sort of alluded to, the 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 issue is is that initially when patients when a patient is born with the condition, they will have these abnormalities in the big toe. Um, sometimes they'll get diagnosed as it's some sort of congenital hallux valgus. Sometimes the pediatrician or the orthopedic surgeon might offer that they, they, they think that perhaps at some point they're going to correct the abnormality with surgery. Sometimes I've seen c- cases where patients have been sort of almost referred for physiotherapy or massage to try and correct the, the abnormality um, in the big toe. But again, before the other onsets of the other clinical manifestations of the disease, it's very difficult just on the basis of the abnormality of the toe to make a clinical diagnosis of FOP. So genetic assessment would be key in in this regard, sort of pre other aspects of the disease um, being um, being being seen, and again, it's a single um, base pair change within the ACBR1 gene. There are also other quite rare genetic disorders which, again, can sometimes um, be associated with abnormalities in the big toe. And again, if you're screening for um, ACVR1 was negative then you might go on to other screening of other uh, genes and this would be done in conjunction with a geneticist and again it may lead to an alternative diagnosis which may obviously not be as severe or devastating uh, for the patient as being diagnosed with with FOP. So again I think it's really key that because of the you know this being genetic being seen at, at birth it's really important that you know pediatricians and pediatric orthopedic surgeons who are, might be seeing uh, abnormalities in feet in young in young patients are aware of the potential link between the abnormality in the big toe and FOP. What's really important is is that if we have a young child where FOP is suspected, it's really important that you reach that you make that diagnosis. Um, before you do any of these procedures that you can see listed here. And we'll talk a bit more in subsequent slides uh, regarding some of the issues related to this. But essentially, any sort of soft tissue trauma um, to the tissues can result in sort of a a disease flare-up with then the subsequent um, sort of production of heterotopic ossification causing a sort of restriction in movement and function so when you're in this sort of period of uncertainty of that the patient may have FOP but you're not sure then you need to avoid all these all these sort of elective uh, procedures that you might be wanting to do as a healthcare professional and again I think what we see is that when the disease starts to have other clinical manifestations so they start to develop these flare-ups where they get these acute quite aggressive soft tissue swellings the obvious concern for a lot of healthcare professionals is is they have a child sitting in front of them who has some fast-growing soft tissue tumor and in patients where you know wrongly they've then gone on to have you know biopsies They've been able to sort of show that you know that then people sometimes have made misdiagnoses because the there's the FOP tissue um, doesn't sort of give any sort of obvious characteristic findings. But again, you can see from data again from patients surveyed worldwide that basically you know ninety percent of individuals on their sort of first presentation with swelling etc 
have been misdiagnosed, and that actually, you know, almost two thirds of individuals um, in this sort of online survey had actually got invasive procedures, so therefore biopsies. And again, as I sort of mentioned in the previous slide, that actually biopsies, any trauma to the tissue in that way can lead to quite severe sudden progression of the condition. And again, you know, you know, I've seen individuals where, again, because of one of these diagnoses of some soft tissue malignancy, they've been put on sort of chemotherapy and other sort of toxic agents to try and treat this condition. And again, it's only been subsequently when perhaps someone's actually looked at the toes. And I think that the, 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 the take-home from this sort of data is that in a young individual who's presenting with these acute soft tissue swellings, um, that perhaps ebb and flow quite quickly, um, you need to look at the toes because then that will help you make the diagnosis and avoid putting someone through an unnecessary biopsy, which will make the condition worse. We also know that, again, if you're giving intramuscular injections, again, that can cause um, problems. Again, direct trauma to the muscle, that could cause a flare-up. Um, and again, often with a lot of these injections in babies could be given in the top of the arm or in the top of the leg. And again, that could then cause a restriction in movement at those major joints. So again, really important to be aware that, you know, you need to make this diagnosis early to avoid sort of harm from these sorts of procedures. And again, as I mentioned with regards to making the misdiagnosis, in some cases people do think that this might be um, a... A, 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 a cancer or malignancy and again there's no evidence that you know chemotherapy obviously is beneficial to people with FOP um, and again radiation therapy again to sort of suspected areas um, will not help the condition and again will cause local soft tissue um, muscle damage uh, and again is, is contraindicated again Sometimes, again, if you're thinking of malignancy and things, again, people have sometimes thought, well, bone marrow transplantation um, might be effective or a cure. That, again, has not been um, sort of so shown to, to, to be true. And, again, there are lots, again, sort of if people are, are sort of going down the route of thinking this could be some sort of malignancy or tumour, um, none of the other sorts of drugs that may be used in these sorts of conditions uh, seem to have any role in sort of anti-angiogenic agents, etc. Seem to have any role in sort of in controlling the disease. And again, all you're doing is exposing patients to potential downsides of treatments, which actually have no benefit in FOP. Um, and again, just because of the nature of the condition. So again, I think you know, in the clinical scenario, when you're trying to help make the diagnosis about whether someone does have FOP, um, you know. Are there other clues that might be helpful? Um, imaging, again, if, you, if you're seeing an individual who has um, pain at a joint and it's not an obvious swelling, um, this may be particularly useful in, say, around the hip where you, you, you're less likely to see swelling and an individual may just be complaining of pain. So sometimes an ultrasound or an MRI might reveal the presence of soft tissue edema um, before the before the sort of the, the the appearance of any of any ossification, and this again would perhaps give a clue about the nature of the condition. Again, in conjunction with a clinical sign of the of the abnormality in the big toe. 
obviously as the disease progresses or as the flare-up starts to sort of move from sort of just soft tissue swelling um, to the to sort of bone formation, you may start to be seeing um, evidence on X-ray of of ectopic bone being formed. Uh, and again, this could be further evaluated if needs be with CT. Uh, and again, so those sorts of imaging tools would give a clue perhaps as to the uh, nature of the condition. And again, functional imaging sort of with sort of nuclear medicine type scans, again, can sometimes be useful to show sort of evidence of active bone formation at sort of um, in, in soft tissue sites. And this, again, might give you a clue um, to help make the diagnosis quicker um, and, and avoid doing unnecessary harm. And again, just as what we sort of highlighting at the end, I mean, the the imaging essentially up till now has very much been used as a clinical assessment tool for the for the for the individual patient obviously whether doing these assessments longitudinally will actually help you predict sort of looking at disease progression or and responses to any potential new treatments is something that is, is basically an area that's that's open for research at the moment but at the mo at the current time the imaging is very much more just looking at the, the disease, where where perhaps things are located. Um, but again, in a lot of situations, clinical evaluation of the patients will also help you um, understand which parts of the body are affected. But again, just being aware of how these imaging tools may help you reach the diagnosis quicker will help you, again, avoid doing unnecessary harm to the individual patients. So again, we've, we've highlighted that, again, that the... There are risks of soft tissue and muscle damage to individual patients. Um, again, you know, when you ask patients, a lot of them, you know, twenty-five percent of them will, will basically who, who've had an intramuscular injection report having had then a flare-up at the site of the injection and then developing heterotopic ossification. So this is really key for you know, to avoid intramuscular sort of painkilling injections, but also any vaccines that could be given via the intramuscular route. It's really key as well that, you know, that when you see abnormal, if you see, if, if, the, if the patient presents later to the clinical, to, to, to the healthcare professional, that they, if they've got evidence of heterotopic bone already present and restriction in movement, you don't want um, someone sort of thinking that they can surgically remove that to try and release or free up a joint. Um, unfortunately, in the on the background of FOP, that's going to lead to much more a much worse clinical picture with disease flare up both at the site where they've operated and sometimes also at sort of a, a more distant site as well. And this can lead to a much worsening situation. And another really important area to be aware of is that um you know dental work needs to um needs to be done with great caution you need to avoid um be careful with extractions but particularly with any sort of dental blocks with anesthetic um because they again could cause fusion of the jaw and the inability to open so again any dental work needs to be done with a specialist center um both before you've made the diagnosis but also once you have made the diagnosis iatrogenic harm in this situation is really high so again i think this really summarizes the um, the reasons for why it's critical to make an early diagnosis because um you know whilst you're waiting for that diagnosis you want to avoid doing harm but even then once you've made the diagnosis 
um, it's 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 critical again that, that you stick to these rules essentially because um, you know this any of these procedures are going to make things worse for you for your individual patients. So again, top left, making the accurate diagnosis early is key. Examine the big toes. You may find that there's enough. You've got enough clinical information just on the examination of the big toes. Um, to um, make a, a potential diagnosis, which can be confirmed with genetics, but you may have to then, if if if, if that gets missed and it's missed, then it would be linking the big toe abnormality with the swellings that subsequently appear as part of the flare-ups. Critical: no biopsies. You, this, if if there's clinical suspicion, do a genetic test. They don't need to be have biopsies. Surgery needs only needs to be done essentially for life-threatening uh, conditions. Be cautious with their dental care. Um, you want to be very careful with dental surgery and dental blocks. Um, Say so surgical removal of the bone is fruitless and will lead to much worsening of the disease. Avoid intramuscular injections. And again, be very careful with physiotherapy input, trying to sort of unlock joints or to impre- increase patients' range of movement. Um, this is, again, could potentially cause tissue damage, which could then cause things to be worse. And I think, unfortunately, again, it's even with all those best measures that one can do, sometimes the disease can progress more in a very slow burn. And sometimes, you know, even without obvious trauma, um, sometimes patients can gradually lose function and movement, um, even despite our best endeavours. So, again, we want to be really, it's really important that we as healthcare professionals avoid harming uh, an individual with FOP. And making the early diagnosis will at least enable us to uh, be aware and offer the right appropriate treatment and care. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. I am Edna Mancilla from the Division of Endocrinology at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Today, I would like to talk to you about improving outcomes and quality of life for patients with FOP or fiber dysplasia ossificans progressiva. FOP is an ultra-rare and severely disabling disorder of extraskeletal bone formation. The cardiopulmonary system and the musculoskeletal system are the most severely affected. A recent uh, natural history study published in 2022 showed that the most frequent uh, comorbidities were restrictive lung disease, jaw ankylosis, fractures, and hearing loss. Chest wall movement is restricted in FOP due to ankylosis of the costovertebral joints, ossification of the paravertebral and intercostal muscles, and spinal deformities. This can lead to decreased vital capacity and thoracic insufficiency. Pneumonia, hypoxia, hypercarbia, and right-sided heart failures are complications. Decreased jaw movement and ankylosis can lead to weight loss. Patients with FOP also have increased incidence of nausea, vomiting, and decreased appetite. They often need pureed foods and small frequent meals. And then G-tube for weight gain is rarely necessary, and a consult to nutritionist is important. Fractures occur frequently on, in orthotopic or heterotopic bone. Risk factors for fractures include risk for falls, immobility, and repeated courses of steroids to treat flares. Fractures should be treated conservatively with splinting 
or closed reduction, surgical or open reduction is contraindicated due to the triggering of flare and, and ectopic ossification. Scoliosis is seen in about 65% of x-rays. Surgical treatment is contraindicated because of the same reason. Lymph swelling and lymphedema may be seen more frequently than in the general population, as arthritis and joint abnormalities. Acute pain may be due to arthritis, to fractures, to osteochondromas, or bursitis. And it's important to differentiate it from acute flare-ups because the flare-ups have to be treated immediately. There's an increased incidence of depression. The recent natural history studies showed that at baseline, 16% of patients with FLP had suicidal ideation. Consult to a mental health specialist early in the course is recommended. Hearing loss may be conductive most frequently, and early diagnosis and treatment is important to avoid speech delay in children. Decreased jaw movement can lead to difficulty brushing teeth, and this leads to an increased incidence of cavities and periodontal disease. Dental hygiene is very important so that you can avoid dental surgery, which can lead to flare-ups and topic ossification. Pressure ulcers are frequent due to decreased mobility and may need the care of a wound specialist. There's a threefold increased incidence of kidney stones compared to the general population, and this might, must be considered in the differential diagnosis of flank pain. Hydration is very important to prevent these as well. The major cause of death in FOP is cardiorespiratory failure due to thoracic insufficiency, hence the importance of respiratory health. Maintaining respiratory health is done through infection precautions and maintaining respiratory capacity. Immunizations are important, especially pneumococcal and influenza, which must be given sub-Q. Prevention of infections during flu season using masks and alcohol gels is helpful. To maintain respiratory capacity, we recommend incentive spirometry, 15 to 30 minutes daily. And exercises such as swimming and singing will also maintain respiratory capacity. Early recognition and treatment of respiratory infections is important as well as a regular consultation with a pulmonologist for spirometry and sleep studies. BiPAP or CPAP may be required at night, but supplemental oxygen is contraindicated, given that a rapid increase in oxygen tension may suppress respiratory drive in these patients who have chronic hypercarbia. A frequent complication in FOP is heterotopic ossification from IM immunizations. A study from 1995 showed that the prevalence of HO after DTP vaccine was 27%. They did not observe any heterotopic ossification with MMR vaccines, which are subcutaneous. Therefore, the International Council, Clinical Council on FOP, recommends that all immunizations be given by the subcutaneous administration for immune vaccines that can be administered by that route. All intramuscular immunizations and immunizations with live or attenuated viruses can lead to flare-ups. 
therefore they must be avoided. Similarly, immunization should not be given during flare-ups, and you should avoid it until six to eight weeks after flare-ups resolve. Regarding the COVID-19 vaccine, the ICC leaves this to be a personal decision based on risks and benefits because this immunization is only given IM. The ICC also recommends that caretakers and family members be vaccinated against pertussis, influenza, and COVID-19. Surgery should only be performed if absolutely necessary since it can lead to heterotopic ossification. Always an, an expert anesthesiologist who is knowledgeable about FOP should be consulted preoperatively and should be present for all elective intubations. If general anesthesia is required, the preferred mode is an awake nasotracheal fiber optic intubation. You should avoid endotracheal intubation because of the neck malformations, jaw ankylosis, and the possibility of an obstructing neck flare-up. Now we'll hear from Erin, a patient with FOP, on the specific aspects of her condition that affect her health and quality of life. And we'll see how they modify her medical care and daily living. Every time I go to the doctor, it's about, it's almost like I have to share my story over and over again and explain what FOP is, um, what it does to you, and how to treat it. And so um, at the moment, I have really, it took a while to find doctors that really listened to me, really wanted to advocate for my needs because I, I have a lot of special circumstances when it comes to treatment. And so recently I've had to see cardiologist for my heart um, because I can't really exercise. And so um, I've also lost a significant amount of weight due to my jaw being locked. So um, I'm worried about that. I also see a pulmonologist for my lungs because I have limited lung capacity and um, due to the curvature of my spine and just the amount of bone growth in my abdomen and chest, neck and throat, as far as just modifications and accommodating me for everything that I have to deal with with FOP, it's about the doctors working with my FOP specialist. Um, and then also, I started having to go to the doctors in my crutches because when I would go in my wheelchair, the doctor's offices aren't always accessible. You know, they're not big enough to accommodate a big power chair. And so I've had a way being comfortable versus uncomfortable using my crutches because now it's more accessible for me that way, but I am in more pain. It's more discomfort. But at the end of the day, I need to be able to go to the doctor and see my doctor and get the care that I need. So from personal experience, my my own experience having to navigate the medical system, dealing with doctors, um, I've had good eggs and I've had bad eggs. I've had doctors that have really listened to me and um, been really accommodating as far as like just knowing, doing their research ahead of time. Um, and really, it really means a lot when they've done their research on FOP and I don't have to go into the office and explain to them, this is what I have. Um, um, I can't have intermuscular injections. I can't, you know... I need when I get my um, blood pressure done. I can't have a automatic one, and so um, I think it's just really important for doctors to think outside the box and to really, you know, not just 
tunnel vision. This is what I learned in medical school. <laughs> you know, it it really is. Everybody is different. You know, they might have a disease and someone else might have the same disease, but they're different people. You know, they the disease affects everybody differently. And so um, I think it's just really important important for them to listen. We're grateful to Erin for sharing her perspective on FOP. FOP care is uh, personalized, and as similarly to Erin, a study showed that 108 of 114 individuals in the natural history study required the aid of assistive devices. 71% required personal care tools, and 61% required care attendance. About 50% required home adaptations, bedroom aids and devices, and mobility aids. And this increased with age. Living with FOP involves prevention of harm and medical care incorporated into the daily lives of children and adults with FOP. Activity is encouraged at all ages. Singing, swimming, water exercises, and incentive spirometry are recommended. And you have to avoid passive range of motion, which can lead to flare-ups. You have to avoid dehydration and malnutrition. Occupational therapy is important, and this will help plan the use of assistive devices to improve the quality of life. We already talked about the avoidance of pressure ulcers, which are frequent due to immobility, and the same for watching for blood clots, which can be produced due to immobility. A consult to the cardiologist and pulmonologist regularly is important, as well as regular hearing tests for the appropriate use of hearing aids when needed. You must prevent trauma and harm, and it's important to recognize the mental and other non-skeletal manifestations of the disease that we already reviewed. And it's important for individuals with FOP to stay connected and up-to-date on treatment guidelines and clinical trials. There are multiple interventions which cost HO in patients with FOP and are contraindicated. These include IM immunizations that we already talked about, but arterial punctures are also contraindicated, as well as biopsies and dental procedures, especially those using mandibular blocks and prolonged opening of the jaw open reduction or internal fixation of fractures is contraindicated as well as any other surgeries unless strictly necessary. Anesthetic procedures, especially involving IM injections and neck manipulation are also contraindicated and physical therapy involving passive range of motion or muscle overuse, which can lead to atherotopic ossification and flares. From the pathophysiology, we can see that there are multiple potential targets for treatment in FOP. We already talked about prevention. Preventing soft tissue injury is standard of care. Inflammation can be targeted by inflammatory drugs, such as glucocorticoids and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Tissue hypoxia can be targeted by H. IF1-alpha inhibitors such as imatinib. Activin A's and BMPs can be targeted by anti-activin A antibody. There's a current ongoing phase 3 tile with garetosmab. Al-2 receptor can be 
targeted by inhibitors, and there are three ongoing phase two trials. And heterotopic endochondral ossification can be targeted by specific retinoid acid receptor gamma agonists, such as paliveratine. This uh, drug just completed a phase three trial and has been approved in Canada for this indication. The ICC has divided medications into three classes. Class one are those medications used for acute flare-ups in FOP that report favorable clinical results with minimal side effects and are drugs that are broadly used for other indications. Examples are glucocorticoids, NSAIDs, and selected COX-2 inhibitors. Class two drugs are those that have theoretical application to FOP that have been approved for the treatment of other disorders and had limited and well-described effects in FOP. Examples are the leukotriene inhibitors, mast cell stabilizers, aminobisphosphonates, and imatinib. Class 3 are investigational drugs, uh, and as already mentioned, the active NA antibody L2 inhibitors, the retinoid acid receptor gamma agonist uh, recently approved in Canada, and mTOR inhibitors. Glucocorticoids are recommended for the acute treatment of flares and should be used very early in the course within the first 24 hours. They're recommended for the flare-ups of the major joints of the appendicular skeleton, the jaw, and the submandibular area. Submandibular flares are especially important since they can affect swallowing and breathing and should be treated immediately. Steroids are also recommended uh, for the prophylaxis in cases of significant muscle trauma or dental or surgical procedures. Steroids should not be used chronically because of the well-known side effects such as adrenal suppression and also are not recommended for flare-ups of the trunk or neck because of the recurrent and chronic nature of these flares. We Typically prescribe prednisone at 2 milligrams per kilo per day up to 100 milligrams for four days. And this course could be repeated with a gradual wean. NSAIDs and COX-2 inhibitors are well-known anti-inflammatory drugs with well-known side effects. They are recommended in the symptomatic management of flare-ups and chronic arthritic pain. Either oral or topical forms can be used. Examples are ketoprofen gel and diclofenac gel for topical anti-inflammatory drugs. There's anecdotal use of of benefits from intravenous bisphosphonates. 75% of the patients who used bisphosphonates reported a decrease in flare-up symptoms. Bisphosphonates act through anti-angiogenic mechanisms, and they decrease bone resorption. So they have the additional benefit of protecting normotopic bone from the negative effects of glucocorticoids and decreasing the risk of fractures. We use pemidronate or soledronate infusion and premedicate with glucocorticoids to avoid reactions. Imatinib is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor used in oncology. In the FOP mouse model, it has shown to block the ALK2 receptor and decrease HO formation. Its off-label use has been reported in seven patients with FOP, and it's important to regularly screen for side effects such as bone marrow suppression, GI side effects, and liver and kidney toxicity.
In summary, the holistic care and FOP should involve a primary care physician who coordinates care and consultation with an FOP specialist and other consultants. Care should focus on preventing injury and iatrogenic harm, identifying and managing comorbidities, preventing and treating flare-ups, and improving the quality of life. This can be done through occupational therapy and the use of assisted devices for activities of daily living as well as general support for the individuals. Thank you. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partners, Progressive Osseous and Heteroplasia Association, International Fibrodysplasia Ossificans Progressiva Association, and the American Society for Bone and Mineral Research. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash NYY860. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated.